was always church. It's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm a downtown campus pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. Glad that you're here. Um, if you have a Bible, go and open up to Galatians chapter 5. To Galatians chapter 5, or if you can look on your iPhone, iPad, we'll be in Galatians chapter 5 here in a little bit. Um, so we're actually taking a, just a quick break from the book of Exodus. Uh, we're getting ready for Easter, it's in a couple of weeks. And so we're going to take a break, do a couple of standalone sermons to get us ready for the resurrection. We'll be back in Exodus, so you guys know we'll be back in Exodus after Easter, for the, probably up until July, and we'll do our summer preaching series. But one of the things that we do at the Austin Stone, if you've been here for any period of time, and any faithful church does, is what the church is supposed to do is to call people to what God's word says he wants his people to do. I know that's shocking, but every faithful church is supposed to, and what the Austin Son wants to do is say, let's go to God's word and let's let his desire and his vision and his dreams for this people be what we strive towards. Let's let his word and his commands and his ideals be what we call everyone to. Because when you read the scriptures, when you read what's in the Bible, you read what God has said, you see there's incredible things God has said in the scriptures. There's these incredible realities that almost seem too good to be true. I mean, there's these realities of God saying, I have love for you in Christ that you cannot be separated from. Like we're just saying that no mountain, no valley, no power, no darkness could ever separate you from me. This love that even if you feel like you're in suffering, even if I feel far away from you, nothing could drown out my love for you. You read in the scriptures this purpose that you now have in Christ. God talks about the purpose he gives to you that can take even the most menial task and turn it into a worthy endeavor. You see, the commands God has for people, his people, these radical acts of obedience he wants all of us to do in generosity and in love and in sacrifice and in service. And when you read the scriptures, there's these incredible ideals God has for his people. Incredible ideals. And for us, if you have believed in Jesus, you have had these moments when all of those ideals, when the things that God says in his word, everything about them feels true. Not just it, I believe it or I understand that it's true, but it feels that it's true. Like I want this more than anything. Those moments in worship where you're singing and everything in you says, I want everything that God wants. Those moments of clarity, those moments of sobriety, sobriety when you say, no, I, if I could choose in this moment, I would choose to follow him every day of my life. I want to bask in his love for me. I want to serve his kingdom. I want to have his purposes be my purposes. You have those moments as a Christian, and that's what we do as a church. We have this life together. We show the city to say, hey, here's what following Jesus looks like. In those moments of clarity, we're, ne we're never more passionate than we are in those moments. But what do you do outside of those moments? So you have those moments where you hear, maybe it's a sermon, maybe you're serving somebody, or maybe you're listening to a song, or you're singing, whatever it may be, and you have those moments where you think, I want everything God wants, and then you leave that moment, and your life is a lot different than what you thought it would be. Life's a lot different than you thought it would be. I mean, how many times have you left that moment, made promises to God, had ambitions for God, only to see them never come to fruition? How many times have we walked out of maybe even this room gathered together thinking my life's going to be different and then nothing really changes? Like if I were to ask you this past month, this past month, and I were to bring you on stage and do a little interview with you and say, hey, tell me stories of how what you believe about God and what you feel about God has actually changed your life. Tell me a story. 
I would assume that you'd have a couple of stories. I, I, I really think you would have stories of how God has changing you and how what you believe is informing your life. But you'd also have plenty of stories of how the ideals that you have weren't truly affecting your life. How those moments of clarity had faded and you were back to the same old things. That the knowledge you agree with and the knowledge you believe and those moments that you have didn't really change your attitude at work. They didn't change your attitude at work. You're still the same employee, the same worker, the same boss. Didn't really change the way you love your family and roommates. Didn't really change the way you get to know your neighbors. You're basically the same person as you were despite that moment where you thought everything would be different. And in the Christian life, when you see that disconnect between the ideal of what should be and the actual of what is, when you see that disconnect, it's very discouraging, isn't it? When you just look at your life and you go, I know what I should be, but what I actually am is very, very different. You say, you start seeing like, man, I wanted to get in, read the Bible this year, and I'm not at all. I, I wanted to not have finances stress me out. I didn't want, I wanted to be more productive at work, and yet I'm not doing anything different than last year, last month. I wanted to get to know my neighbor and ask them finally what they thought about Jesus, and I still haven't done it. I just keep watching Netflix for hours. I can't stop. It's amazing. You find the ideal and the actual are very, very different. And that's what all of us go through. All of us have that experience where we realize our lives are not measuring up to the ideals that we have. Let me give you an illustration of this from a story in my life a couple years ago. And I, I'm saying a couple years ago, not because back in the day when I used to struggle. It's not what I mean. What I mean is this story of my life, I think it's a good microcosm of this tension that we live in where the ideal is different from the actual. So a little known fact about me is I'm not a huge fan of flying, not a big fan of it. Um, I'm, God, by God's grace, I'm slowly getting better at not flying, I can't fly, I mean, in an airplane of flying, right? I'm getting better at flying, I've been trying really well. Um, no, so it was weird for me because my, I grew up flying all the time. So my mom worked for American Airlines, we flew all the time, from, the, from my, the, my earliest thought, I can remember flying, okay? So it's, I'm used to it, it's normal, but I remember it was one flight in particular, I was like 17 or 18 years old, and I remember I just had this thought where I was sitting there kind of looking at the window, and I just kind of realized, I'm in a metal tube going 500 miles an hour, 35,000 feet up, and below me there's like 50 feet of metal, and then there's nothing. And it just hit me, I was like, this is insane. I was like, this is crazy, and all of a sudden, I don't, it was, it was, I don't know what happened in me, but something clicked in me, and I just became terrified. Just grabbed my seat, and I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening right now? I'm scared. And so what happened is, when I was 17, 18 years old, something shifted in me, and all of a sudden, flying became this thing where, with a lot of anxiety for me. It became this thing where, like, every time we hit turbulence, I'm grabbing on, I'm screaming out, Jesus, in the airplane, and people are getting freaked out around me. I'm saying, speaking in tongues and all kinds of crazy stuff. Because I just anxious. I mean, my wife will try to, well, like, when we we're flying together, when I used to get really, really nervous, she grabbed my hand. I'm like, get away from me. I'm just freaking out. Because I'm terrified when I fly. And so, because in that moment, I feel so needy. I feel so helpless. I can't do anything in my mind. And so that's kind of been my, experience. I was 17 or 18 years old, that, that was my experience for many, many years. And so on a trip to Orlando that I had about four years ago, I went to Orlando about four years ago for some, some stuff with the church and and I remember on the way there, so we went from Austin to Atlanta, Atlanta to Orlando. Orlando is beautiful, concrete for days. So we went to Orlando. If you're from Orlando, I'm sorry. But that, it's just, 
it's, it's not good. Anyway, so we go into Orlando, and on the way there, the first two flights, I, they were amazing. Like, it was like everyone that I, t- I, had, I had only heard about these amazing flights, how you can, like, get work done, and you can, like, think about things other than just thinking about crashing. Like, I, I just had, it was the two great flights. I remember landing in Orlando, and I was genuinely like, thank you, God. I, I remember in prayer just saying, you did not have to give me those two flights where anxiety-free, no turbulence, smooth, amazing flights. Thank you for that. But then on the way back, on the way back, I I was expecting the same thing. God, you can do whatever, you can give me peace again. I can't wait. Go from Orlando to Atlanta. And on that flight, we just hit a little bit of turbulence. It wasn't anything crazy. It just, we dropped a little bit and it it clicked in me again. And I was terrified. And I was just, and I, the whole flight, I I was just staring at the seat in front of me, just clinging to, as if just holding on tighter made everything better. And I sat there, and I remember I just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I just remember thinking, like, hey, remember the gospel, Tyler. Like, you're loved by God. He'll take care of you. I was rehearsing promises. Okay, no, he's conquered death. I don't have to be scared of it anymore. Even if we do crash, I get to go be with Jesus now. And I'm telling myself all of these things, and I'm praying, God, help me believe them. God, help me believe them. God, help me believe them. And I'm sitting there, and nothing is changing. I know the truth. I know that I should have no anxiety. God's in control even of airplanes. I'm praying actively, God, change me to believe that. Nothing was changing in me. I'm just sitting there anxious, worried, and fearful. And you've been there, right? You, if you're a Christian, you have been there where you know what you should do and you just cannot produce it in yourself. You're even praying. You're even asking God to do something and it still won't Change. That was me on the plane the entire flight. And the whole time, you know what happens? You begin to wonder, what's wrong with me? Why can't I believe that? You begin to think, what's wrong with God? Where is he? Why isn't he showing up? And so after we landed in Atlanta, I calmed down. I was in the airport kind of just thinking, why am I so scared of flying? And for me, undergirding all of it was just this fear of death. I'm just scared to die. Just scared of the idea of dying. And so I'm sitting there in the airport, and I remember I was so deflated by that because this is four years ago. I had just started preaching at this church. And I had been telling people, hey, trust in Jesus no matter what. He overcame death. Don't fear it. I'm saying these things, and I'm sitting in the Atlanta airport realizing how little I believed in myself. I'm just deflated, and I'm discouraged. And there was a time I, just, I felt just, I was discouraged, but I felt encouraged again by God. Hey, I love you. You're not... Because the gospel, I love you. This, Jesus was faithful when you weren't. All the different things about who God is. And I would love to tell you that after that time in the airport of, of kind of calming down, that I got on the airplane from Atlanta to Austin and that I just was courageous and faithful and I was just singing songs the whole flight. It's not true at all. I remember we, as soon as we took off, exact same fear. And I just remember the same thing. Sitting there, I can remember sitting um, by the window and just looking out and just trying to read a book, couldn't. Try to listen to a sermon, couldn't, because my mind just could not calm down. I could not quench the anxiety in me. I started praying, and so what I started doing, I started praying for anything I could think of. It's like, God, just help me sit in this seat. God, I pray for that airplane wing. Like, I'm just praying for whatever I can think of. Keep it together. Um, praying for you guys. So I'm praying for all these different things just to keep my mind off of it. And you know when the fear finally subsided? When we landed. I, I wish there was a moment in the, in the airplane where I just had this faith and I was, just thought, I believe him. I don't have to worry anymore. But it did not until we landed did I calm down. 
And so in that experience, the ideal was very different from my actual. The ideal of trusting him no matter what was very different from my actual, and it was crushing to me. It was so discouraging to me. And all of us, especially in Christ, you're going to find yourself in that disconnect. You're going to find yourself in that disconnect where your actual is very different from the ideal. And that place, that disconnect can be a devastating one if you don't know what's happening. It really can be a devastating one for you because what will begin to happen is if you sit there long enough, it will begin to erode your faith that God could ever produce the ideal in you. Give it long enough, you'll begin to think, you'll become cynical and think, the ideal isn't possible. God's love can't be that strong. I can never obey him in that way. He's never going to produce that in me, so I'm just going to learn how to settle. If you sit in that disconnect long enough and you, you don't know what's happening, you don't know how to understand it, eventually you're going to become cynical and begin to say things like, I'm just not that spiritual. You'll begin to say things like, well, I tried praying. I tried, but I kind of fumbled through it. God didn't seem to answer my prayers. And so I'm not really a praying type. I'm more practical. You begin to make these judgments of self and begin to give yourself an identity that says, I'm not really a praying person. You, you think things like, well, I tried to share the gospel with my friend who didn't know Jesus, and I was awkward, and they were awkward, awkward and they didn't want to talk to me about Jesus anymore after that. So it's not really the gift that I have. I'm not really that type of person. You begin to think, okay, I tried loving my spouse and serving them or my roommate, my coworker, and nothing's changing in them. They're just as frustrated with me as they've always been. So I'm just going to be okay with a cold relationship. I tried abstaining from that sin, but the desires were there tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So I guess it's just my thorn in the flesh is to sin like this. All of a sudden, if you don't understand that this disconnect is part of the Christian life, part of our experience, you'll begin to settle for mediocrity. You will. You'll begin to think, I'm just never going to be what God says I could be in the scriptures. You begin to settle. And if all of us as a people, as individuals, if we begin to settle for that disconnect and, and quit striving for the ideal, we will become a mediocre church. Because the church is, is just the composite of what the people are. And if you and I don't strive for the ideal and we don't go towards what God has called us to be, we're just going to be mediocre and miss out on everything God has for us. Because the Christian life is one of tension. You have to know that. Don't just think it's just, it's all mountaintops. It's always amazing experiences. And if I'm not having this an amazing experience all the time, something's wrong with me. That's not true. The Christian life is built around tension. This tension of the ideal and the actual being very different. Because you have this tension in you, Christian, because of God's love for you. What I want you to understand is the tension that you feel, the, the, different, the competing desires that you have, is from God and his love for you. The only reason you feel tension, the only reason you even feel the disconnect is because God has loved you. I want you to listen to what every human being is like before they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 3, don't turn to Romans 3, 9. It's going to describe for us what every human being is like towards God before they receive the gospel. Romans 3, 9. Since we, for we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, everybody, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So without Jesus, 
humanity, no one's good, no one's even kind of righteous, no one's even kind of good, no one even kind of pursues God. And so when you, when you read that verse, you'll think, well, I mean, I know some good people. But when what Romans and what Paul is talking about is good relative to God. Like, relative to other human beings, we can make these categories and these paradigms where we could tell ourselves and show ourselves we're better than other people, but relative to God, no one's good. No one seeks him, no one wants him. And if we get around God, you know what your desire is without Jesus? Your desire is to manipulate him. Your desire is I'll pray so long as you give me health, I'll obey so long as you give me a family, I'll do this so long as you give me money. Without God interceding for us and intervening for us, our only desire is to either run away from him or to manipulate him. We don't want him. That's our only desire without Jesus. But God loved this world. He sent his son to rescue us from our rebellion. And one of the main things Jesus did for you, if you're in Christ, one of the main things he did was give you his spirit. One of the, in, the, in the Old Testament, one of the main promises God makes to his people is that, hey, guess what? One day you're going to have my spirit and you're actually going to want to obey me. Because the Old Testament's full of people who knew what they should do but didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it. They didn't have desires for it. So God said, guess what? One day I'm going to give you my spirit. Jesus is going to purify you from sin so you can have my spirit, and he's going to give you new desires for me. One of the best things you get, one of the greatest gifts you get as a Christian is the Holy Spirit in you. And here's what he does in you, Christian. He gives you new desires. He gives you new desires. And really simply put, the desires of the spirit of God in your life is this. You want all that God wants. The Spirit of God, you now have desires that want everything God wants. But you also have those old desires still in you too. And therein lies the tension. The tension now is that you have these parallel streams of desire in you. Parallel streams of desire. One, this term called the flesh, the Bible uses, those old desires, those impulses to not trust God. And these new desires from the Spirit You want to trust God. You want to follow him faithfully. Look at Galatians 5, 16 through 17. Galatians 5, 16 through 17. It really sums up this reality that you experience as a Christian. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Listen to to those verses again. Now think about it in terms of tension. Listen to the language. Think about the terms of the tension you're going to feel as a Christian. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you see the tension that's created in every Christian now? And the only reason you have the tension is because God intervened and loved you and gave you his spirit. That's why you have tension. And so if you're in here, you should be encouraged if you experience the disconnect between ideal and the actual. If you experience the tension of having competing desires, you should be encouraged. Why? Because it means you're alive. It means you're alive. The fact that there is conflict in you is evidence that you're alive. It's evidence that you're alive. You should not be discouraged that you experience those tensions in you. Like when I was on the plane and I'm crying out and I'm praying 
and I'm experiencing that tension, I should be encouraged. Why? Because it's showing I have parallel streams of desire. I had one stream that says, I want to worry and doubt and be fearful. And I have one stream in me, the Spirit of God, that's saying, I want to trust and honor God at the exact same time. And that should encourage me when I go through that. And that should encourage you when you go through that. Why? Because dead people can't feel things. If you're dead, you don't have competing desires. If you're spiritually dead, you don't have competing desires. You only have one stream in you. And it doesn't want anything to do with God. But if you're alive, you can feel things. And so for you, Christian, if you're struggling, know the struggle is evidence that you're alive. Dead people don't struggle. Dead people don't fight. Dead people don't feel anything. But spiritually alive people struggle and fight to strive for the ideal, even though their actual is different. So the first thing is to know God's love for you is why you have the struggle. The Spirit of God created it. But the second thing, as you live in the tension, as you live in the tension, you have to know this, God cares for you. God cares for you as you struggle, as you fight inwardly, as you have these desires that keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You have to know God cares for you. And here's how he cares for you. He shows compassion to your weaknesses and he disciplines you in your sin. God our Father shows compassion to you in your weakness and he disciplines you in your sin. See, he's compassionate towards our weakness. And sometimes for me, especially... I mean, because that, that story in the plane is a microcosm of my life. When, when I experience that tension, when I experience that fight, when I'm fighting against sin and I'm struggling to get to the ideal, even though my actual is different, I find myself believing the lie that God's annoyed with me. You've been there where you think, I kind of have this picture of God that he's just in heaven thinking, how are you still struggling with this? Tyler, it's been 10 years of dealing with this whole airplane thing. How in the world are you still getting anxious? You have the feeling as if he's just annoyed that you're even having to fight against something. He's annoyed that there's even tension in you. And it discourages me. It discourages us to think that God is just in heaven frustrated with his people who are striving their best to be faithful to him. But I want you to know that our Father in heaven is compassionate towards you. Listen to how it describes God in Psalm 103:13. Listen to how it describes God and his kindness and patience towards his people. Psalm 103:13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God says that the way a father will be kind towards the weaknesses of his children is the way our God is compassionate and kind towards us. You have a father in heaven who's treating you as his own sons and daughters, and he knows your situation. He knows that you're weak. He knows your struggle. He knows your frame. And guess what? As you're struggling, as you're fighting, as you're trying your best to be faithful, God is not frustrated. He's not frustrated. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's actually warm-hearted towards you. He's warm towards you because it says he knows our frame. He knows that you're dust. He knows you have limitations. He knows you have tendencies. He knows you have a background. He knows you have a story. He knows you have a history. And when you struggle and you're fighting to fear him above all, even though your actual is different than the ideal, he has compassion towards you. A good way to think about this since the illustrations there is the way a father relates to his children. So I think about the, my, my children. 
LRB is going to be five, and Henry is going to be two in about a month, and in about a week, we're going to add number three. Pray for me. Um, but with my two children, uh, Henry is about to be two. And he's, at, he's at that stage in his life where you're not sure if he understands what you're saying to him yet. Like you think he may, and you're not sure of that smile if he's like, I can understand, but you don't know, goo goo gaga, and I'll just play my way through it. Or if it's genuinely he doesn't understand. And so right now what I'm having to teach him to do and help him understand is that he can't use his um, life as a 20-month-old to terrorize his older sister. I'm teaching him he can't just do this whenever he wants. So his older sister, Elle, since, she, since I can remember, since she began to even sit up and drink milk on her own, I remember she has this routine every, almost every morning. Without fail, she has this really weird routine where she wakes up, she watch, wants her soft blanket, okay? She's going to lay it on her, on her lap. has to be flat. There cannot be any wrinkles in it at all. Trust me, I've learned, okay? She wants it flat. She wants milk warm. Not hot, not cold, warm. And she will tell me, too cold, too cold, send it back. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, yes ma'am. Like, and, and then she wants to drink her milk and pat her blanket as she's drinking her milk. It's a very bizarre thing, and she does it every single morning. And the thing is, if you touch her blanket, she is going to go golem on you. She's going to lose her mind, scream at you, because this is my precious, okay? You do not touch the blanket, okay? Now, here's the thing. She's the oldest, and so there was a season of her life where me and Lauren are like, fine, stay over there. You can, war you can warm up this morning. She's not a morning person, and we'll let her do her thing, and then she'll kind of warm up, and she'll be good to go after she finishes her milk. But now she has a little brother. And her little brother Henry is a fun-loving, wants-a-party kind of kid, and he thinks it's hilarious to mess with his sister. In his mind, now here's the thing, I don't know how much he knows, how much he understands that he's doing, but in his mind he's learned, if I grab this blanket, it's hilarious. That's what he's learned. <laughs> and so here's what will happen. We'll give him the milk, everything's here, blankets all on her legs, she's patting it, she's drinking it, and all of a sudden I hear screaming, and I hear Ellerby screaming, Daddy, blanket, in tears, and Henry going, ha-ha, and just laughing. And here's this scene, and, and, he, and I've told Henry before, hey, you can't just take Elle's blanket, take it easy. And he's in this place where he's doing it not out of rebellion against me. He's not disobeying my word because he's just rebellious. He's immature. He's weak. He's only 20 month old. I, I don't know how much he can really understand. So you know what I don't do? I don't just scream at him and spank him on the spot, okay? That's not what I do. I'm actually really kind towards him. Most of the time what I do is I just kind of take him away, hand him an iPad, which is the best parent ever, hand him an iPad, and say, go have fun, okay? If you're judging me, whatever. iPads, okay? <laughs> I have about to have three kids under five, okay? Take it easy. But that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll be compassionate, because why? His frame, who he actually is right now as a 20-month-old, informs the way I interact with him. I'm kind and I'm patient. Why? Because he's, this is out of weakness, not rebellion. It's out of weakness. He doesn't know better yet. It, and it doesn't mean that what he's doing is okay. It doesn't mean I, mean, I even approve of, approve of it. It just means I'm a father and I want to be compassionate towards the weaknesses of my children and not think everything is just rebellion. In the same way, so because when, when he's 10 and he keeps doing this, I will not parent him the same way. Why? Because he has a better understanding of what I mean. When he's five even, he should not be doing those things because he should understand how to follow his father's voice. His frame, where he is in his life, informs the way I parent him. In the same way God with you. In the same way God is with you. He is compassionate towards the tension you live in. 
He knows your frame. Listen, God never wants you to sin. He's never okay with your sin. He commands you to strive after him all the time. But remember, he is gracious and kind, even when you fail. Even when you fail, you, you, you can't have the mentality of, well, if I sinned and I messed up and I failed, all the striving, all the struggle that went into that, trying not to sin, trying to be faithful, God doesn't care about. That's not true. Think about it as a parent, how much different it is when, if you have children, how much different it is when you see your son or daughter trying to be faithful, trying to be disciplined. And say they still fail, you have so much more compassion towards them than when they're just running off like it's no big deal, ignoring everything you say. God is our Father. He is compassionate towards you in your weakness. The tension does not make him want to run away from you. It makes him want to show kindness and patience towards you as you struggle to obey. So he's our Father, and he cares for us in the tension by showing compassion. But he also, he also cares for us in the tension by disciplining us when we sin. Disciplining us when we sin. Here's another thing that happens, though. We, we'll see that side of God. It's okay. He's, he's our father. He's compassionate. So if I sin, no big deal. He loves me. And we begin to use his compassion to justify our sin. We begin to use his warm-heartedness towards us, his tenderness towards us, to as a justification for our sin. And here's what God will do. Because he's a father and because he loves us, he will discipline us when we reject him. See, we will think his love means he'll never want to discipline me, but God the Father says, no, it's precisely his fatherly love for you that will cause him to cause you some momentary pain for your eternal good. Listen to Hebrews 12. This incredible text talks about how God the Father leads us as his children. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. It says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, he's quoting Proverbs, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. Skip to verse 10. Verse 10, for they, talking about our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment of, di of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it. That text says explicitly that it's because God loves you that he'll discipline you. It says even more so that if he doesn't discipline you, that means you're not a son, you're not a daughter. That to receive you as a child means that God is now your father and he will discipline us when we sin. God hates sin. He hates it. And he loves his kids. He hates sin because all it's going to produce in you is death and sorrow and pain and take you far from him. And so he wants to discipline you so you'll come back to him. It says so we could share his holiness. His holiness is that he's set apart in joy and in worth. And he says, I want you to share in my holiness. Share with me so I'm going to discipline you now so you can share in it forever. So like I said, my daughter Ellerby will be five in about a month. And so she's at a place now in her life where she can understand my words and she can understand what it means to obey me and understand what it means to follow instruction. And so what I've had to do is when she's known better and she's chosen sin, she's chosen to disrespect me or not listen to Lauren or her mom and not love her brother, not love her friends, when she has chosen to sin, 
Throughout her life, I've had to discipline her in various forms, various ways, depending on what the actual offense was. And I want you to know, just a side note of this, there have been times when I've disciplined my daughter, this is hopefully good practice for dads in here, where I've had to apologize to her for how I've disciplined her, how I reacted in anger. Because you have to know every human father, every earthly father is going to fail in this regard. I've had to ask my daughter, hey, will you forgive me? Daddy was overreacting. Daddy was too angry. I'm sorry. Because the thing about God and his discipline of you, listen, God never overreacts. God our Father never overreacts. He never disciplines out of weakness. Many of every father in this room can relate to how often we have disciplined out of weariness and tiredness, not out of love and thoughtfulness. And God our Father, though, he has no weaknesses. He, ha- he never gets tired. So he never disciplines us out of some weakness in him. It's always out of thoughtful love for us. With that said, with my daughter, Elle, every time I have to dis- discipline her, whatever it may be, I want to stress to her. I stress her over and over again how much I love her and that I'm only doing this because I love her. Because my daughter, Elle, is very just sweet, tenderhearted little girl. And even the thought of discipline makes her cry. Even the thought of, Ellerby, do you need discipline? No, cry, room. Like, that's what, how it happens. And here's, I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy disciplining my daughter at all. But it's because I love her and her long-term term joy and happiness that I do it. It's out of love. As strange as it may seem to her, the reason I'm doing it, because I always tell her, I go, Ellerby, do you know who the most unhappy people are? People who can't think about anything other than themselves. And I want you to learn how to think about God and other people, and that's why we're doing it. That's why you're going through discipline right now. Because the discipline for her, the discipline for us, is a pointer. You see, there's a big distinction. It's not punishment. Punishment is retribution for the offense. Discipline is pointing you and saying, wake up and save yourself from long-term pain and go the right way. So when I tell my daughter, I'm saying, I'm disciplining you because I love you, because I want to give you a small, thoughtful calculated dose of temporary pain to keep you from long-term destruction if you keep walking in this sin and rejecting God's word. That's what I want her to do. Discipline's meant to be smelling salts to wake you up and go, oh, sin is foolishness. I should walk in the ways of God. That's the point of discipline. You would only do it because you love somebody. It's not enjoyable at the time, right? Especially in this life with me and my daughter, it's not enjoyable for either one of us. But I know this is my role in her life to help her see There is greater joy in following God. There's greater joy in following God. And so if you're a child of God, you are going to receive discipline. It says so. It says if you're a child, you will be disciplined. It says, and don't don't be wearied by him reproving you. That's what happens to sons. It says he chastises every son. But what discipline will look like is going to vary from person to person, just so you know. I know for me, one of the clearest examples in my life where I know for sure God was disciplining me was my sophomore year of college. Uh, that year, I had basically just, just gone after sexual sin. This is my sophomore year of college. I, just, I, I got saved when I was 18. I was 20 years old, and I just went after sexual sin, and it was the worst year of my life. I was just stuck in depression, and I was sad all the time, because I just kind of gave up and just gave into it. And when looking back now, what I see is that I think God let darkness overwhelm me that season and brought depression into my life to show me, here's a little taste of what life is like if you keep going down this road. Here's a temporary, momentary piece of pain and sadness so you can see 
it's not wise, it's not good, and it's not joyful to follow your sin. And in the, in the season, I hated it. I remember thinking God's love didn't feel real, God's forgiveness didn't seem possible, and I just hated every part of it. But now I'm thankful because it was part of how miserable that season was that produced so much good in my life later on. It helped me see there's nothing good from this sin in my life, and it helped me have a lot of victory in it. So like all discipline, at the time I hated it, but now I'm thankful for it. And here's the thing, I don't know how God in your life is going to discipline you. Paul, the apostle, he received a thorn in his flesh, a metaphor. A thorn in his flesh, though, the whole point was to keep him from boasting. Paul said, I've gotten to have some incredible revelations given to me from God, and so God gave me a thorn in my flesh to keep me from boasting. God gave me a season of depression to show me how terrible my sin was. I don't know what it'll be for you. Because God is our father and he knows all of his children. And guess what? Every child needs something different. Every child needs something different. The way you discipline, I discipline Elle and discipline Henry is going to be different because they're different children. In the same way, I don't know how he'll do it, but he will correct you. He will challenge you. And he will give you some pain so that you can learn what it means to walk in his ways. So you can know what it means to run away from sin, share in his holiness, and know him as your father. He cares for you by showing compassion to your weaknesses and disciplining you when you sin. Now, the, one of the best things for all of us, and we're almost done, in all this tension, is that in all of the tension that we feel, Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted as we are to go into sin, yet he was without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows the temptations you face. He knows what it feels like to have the temptation to say, don't strive after the ideal, yet he never succumbed to it. The thing about Jesus is so amazing it's his actual and the ideal were always the same. His actual always was the ideal. He never had disconnect because he always was faithful to God. And it says that in the midst of the tension, he says, he's available to us. As you're in the tension, as you're struggling to obey, he's there with you. And he says, he has mercy and grace for you all the time. All the time. So that phrase says, draw near to the throne of grace. How do you draw near to the throne of grace? Is there a throne room you go to? Is this Game of Thrones? Do I go to? Like, what does it look like? Here's how you draw near. You pray. It's so simple, yet so difficult. You pray. Prayer is what bridges the gap of the ideal and the actual. In prayer, here's what you do. Here's, here's how you draw near. You confess your actual. Confess your actual. Where are you actually with God? Confess to him, I don't believe that you're good right now. I don't see what's going on. Confess where you are. Be honest where you are. He knows where you are. And tell him, you should be the ideal, but you're not. Confess your actual and then plead for the ideal. Plead, God, would you please give me faith to believe these things about you? Would you please give me faith to believe that you actually are good, you actually do love me, I actually can fight this sin? Prayer is where you bridge the gap between, and you bridge the chasm between the ideal and your actual. You beg him, God, make the ideal a reality in me. Let me encourage you with this. Sometimes, sometimes he'll answer that prayer in a moment. 
Like sometimes you'll be thinking, seeing the disconnect, being discouraged. You cry out in prayer, God, make this a reality. And he does in a moment. All of a sudden you have peace and you destroy that sin and you love that person. That person comes to Christ. But honestly, those are rare. Those are rare. More often than not, here's how the Christian life works. He will slowly but surely produce spiritual fruit in your life. More often than not, he will slowly but surely produce spiritual fruit in your life. Do not have this Christian mentality that thinks if it's not happening in an instant, then something's wrong. It's actually not the normal way that God works. Typically, it's slowly but surely. I am not where I should be when it comes to flying on airplanes. I, I should be much, I know better. I should be much more confident in God's sovereignty than I am on an airplane. But guess what? I'm better than I was. I'm better than I was. I don't get nearly as anxious as I used to, though I still do. But I don't get nearly as fearful as I used to. Why? Because slowly but surely, through prayer, as I'm crying out, God, make the ideal my reality, he's slowly producing that over time. And what will help you in that tension, what will help you keep praying is knowing your God, who is in heaven, your Father, cares for you. Your Jesus, who reigns over all things, is there for you to cry out to. And the Spirit of God is empowering you to follow the desires after God. So I'm going to read you this text from Galatians, and we'll be done. Galatians 6, 8. Hear this. If you're struggling in the Christian faith, listen to this promise. For the one who sows to his own flesh his sinful desires will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Christian, do not grow weary in doing good. It can be wearisome. That's why he says it. Don't grow weary. Why? Here's the promise. In due season, you will reap. In due season, your father will produce all the things you're asking him to, all the things he wants to in your life. So until then, stay faithful. Don't give up. Keep doing good. Let's pray together. Father, I am so thankful for your word today. God, I'm thankful for your word that gives us explanations to the things that we experience. God, your word that gives us guidance on how to live our lives. And God, your word that tells us what your character is like. And God, your character is always more loving and more kind and more faithful than I could ever imagine you to be. God, you always are. Every time we get to see in your word, you're always more tender towards us than we imagine you to be. You always take sin more seriously than we could ever think. And so, God, would you help us trust in your character as we struggle to do good, as we struggle to find faith, as we struggle to be obedient, as we struggle to stay near you. God, I, I would ask that this morning would be an encouragement to those in this room who are fighting against their sin and they feel hopeless. God, those of us who feel like we have just been spinning our wheels in this area of our life, we keep struggling, keep failing. God, would you help us get up and stay faithful to you? God, would we look to this Jesus who actually went before us and was faithful for us and died for us and will give us all the mercy, all the grace that we need when we cry out to him? God, make us a praying people. God, make us a people who we confess our actual. We confess how we're actually doing, and God, we plead for your ideal. 
We plead for the Spirit of God to do great things in us. God, we ask these things so that this city could see that the Christian life is not one where just there's bliss all the time, never any worries, never any troubles, but God, this city would see, God, that following you leads us into tension because we're learning how to be sons and daughters. Because, Father, you're teaching us what it means to be your people. So, God, give us faith to not grow weary of doing good, but to stay faithful for in due time, God, we will reap from your spirit if we do not give up. God, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand together and let's sing.